Good evening. Would you open your Bibles to Psalm 2? Last week when Dan was saying, talking about we didn't know where we were going to go and joking about going to Psalm 2, Mariel asked me if I was going to teach it, and I said no, but the Lord had different plans. So uh, I had some other Psalms that I was looking at um, and preparing for, but... As I was studying and preparing and praying, I just kept coming back to this psalm for application for us for today. So that's why we're there. Um, as you heard, Pastor Danny's at home um, with vertigo. So just keep him in your prayer. You know, he, as he shared before, it kind of comes and goes. So and it's a struggle. You know, his heart is to be here serving, uh, ministering, um, and, and to do what the Lord's called him to. And this kind of really throws him off when this kind of stuff happens and then he has to miss being here so um just prayers for him for that and then two more prayer requests let me get them pulled up because i'm not going to remember exactly but um we wanted to pray for uh a baby uh named alice uh who is stephanie and matthew's neighbor's granddaughter who was born um with some health issues not breathing, rushed to Children's Hospital, is there um, serious health conditions, seems to be some improvement. Um, so we wanted to pray for her. And then um, Lynn and Chris, uh, Lynn's mother uh, has a pretty serious surgery that's going to happen tomorrow, um, a uh, mass in her colon that sounds uh, like that has to be removed. So we want to lift that, those up. So let's pray. Lord, we do pray for Lily, for Lynn's mom, and, and we just ask that, Lord, you would be with her tonight, Lord, um, and tomorrow as she's going in for the surgery. Pray for the surgeon that you would give him wisdom and discernment as to how to um, do the work he has before him. We pray for comfort and peace for the family, for Lynn and Chris as they make their way down there um, to be with them. and. Uh, we just, uh, Lord, she is in your hands, and, and we pray that you would just sovereignly give peace over this whole situation and, and work according to your will, Lord. And we ask that uh, as they go in to remove this mass, that there wouldn't be anything else in there. It would be just healed, Lord. And we, we ask this, Lord, for uh, for Lily. Lord, and we, we also lift up baby Alice, Lord, in the family and uh, Lord, we, we do just pray for that, that young life, Lord, that you would touch and heal her, Lord. Uh, we pray that with uh, her stopping breathing, Lord, that she would have a miraculous recovery with no uh, damage to her brain or other things, Lord. And just pray for that healing for mom and dad, Lord, and the grandparents, Lord, that you would comfort them, Lord. Uh, we know that the grandparents are believers, but not sure about the uh, mother and father. So we just pray for them, Lord, that you would use uh, Matthew and Stephanie and the grandparents in this situation, Lord. Um, just be comfort and hope through your strength and your power, Lord. Uh, and we pray for tonight, Lord, that you would speak to us as we look at these things. Lord, as we uh, ponder your awesome power. Uh, your righteousness, your judgment, Lord, and your strength. And we just ask that you would speak to us tonight. In your name, amen. All right. Psalm 2. Let's read it. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet... I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The psalm here, we're not told, as we are in some of the psalms, um, that this was written by David. However, uh, in Acts chapter 4, we see uh, the disciples there praying to the Lord, uh, and they quote this psalm and attribute it to David. Uh, As we believe all scripture is given by inspiration of God, God breathed and inspired by him, that includes the book of Acts. Therefore, we can say that the Holy Spirit has given us who the author of Psalm 2 is. Um, as through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the disciples spoke and Luke, the physician, recorded down in the book of Acts that David wrote this psalm. Uh, what is interesting about that whole scene, it's actually related to what we touched on last time I taught um, with uh, the um, lame man who had been healed and then the uh, religious leaders coming against the apostles as uh, Peter and John had healed this man and they were being uh, asked by what authority and whose name they had done this. In response to the persecution and being told that they should no longer do these things, uh, they gathered together with the disciples and they basically quote this and they say that, um, that the persecution that was taking place Uh, that the resistance against Jesus that took place in their time was a fulfillment of these things. They say that the Gentiles, the Jewish leaders, and the people had crucified the Lord. And uh, that, uh, again, this was in fulfillment of that. So as we look at this, we'll see that this indeed has its partial fulfillment in that taking place in the book of Acts. Um, But we'll also see that there is more to this than just that partial fulfillment. So uh, verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage? That word nations is uh, Hebrew word goyim, uh, which in fact if you uh, hear sometimes uh, Jewish people today will even use that term, and it's basically Gentiles, um, nations. The old King James Version says heathen, um, so non-Jewish nations. Uh, And it speaks of defined groups of people. Um, So just like we think of in our modern ideas of a nation, here's a a group of people defined by their geographic location or their ethnicity and their their groups there. Um, It says that they rage. And that word rage, it's less of the idea of an outrage, but more of a planned insurrection is what that speaks of. It's, it's, it's related to that plotting together, that, that uh, uh, plotting this vain thing. Uh, but it means that they're conspiring and plotting together. And then the word, the people there, uh, that's speaking of people in all of their different definable groups. Uh, meaning the unity and diversity of mankind. So it's like we would say all the races of people or all the, the different people groups across the earth. So here the psalmist, as he's writing, he's saying the nations themselves, the groups of people, and then all the people themselves as well are all joined together in this thing where they're uh, planning insurrection, as we've read, against the Lord. They're plotting uh, this meditating, this devising, this imagining vain, worthless things. That word plot is actually the same word that we looked at last week in verse 2 of Psalm 1, where it says, in his law he meditates day and night. It's the same word, but we see the opposite. In Psalm 1, it's the blessed godly man who has his delight in the law of the Lord, and in the law of the Lord he's meditating, he's imagining, he's musing, he's plotting upon it, not in an evil way, but he's thinking through and planning out how to apply the law of God and doing it day and night. And in the opposite way, we see the people here 
plotting, devising, meditating upon, musing on vain and worthless things. But it's not just vain and worthless things like it's amusement or it's things that are pointless, but it's vain and worthless things against the Lord. That's the context there. It's in opposition to him. Verse 2, it says the kings of the earth, and that's literally what it's speaking of, kings over the cosmological earth, rulers, setting themselves. And that word set themselves, it's to oppose or to oppress, to stand as an adversary. So they're standing up in opposition to the Lord. The kings setting themselves. And the word rulers in in verse 2, it means uh, princes or someone with weight or authority. And it says they're taking counsel together. That word uh, for counsel actually is a word to lay a foundation. uh, To establish cities. To seat closely together. To create a conclave. So basically, in essence, it's saying they're gathering themselves together. They're making plans to take a stand in opposition and to build against the Lord. All of these things, the nations raging, the people plotting, the kings in opposition setting themselves against the Lord, the rulers, the princes coming together, taking counsel together. And it's against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. As we read this psalm, we see there's different uh, people speaking or different perspectives of who is speaking on this. Uh, This first one, it seems to be uh, from the perspective either of the psalmist or from the father himself as he's seeing these things take place, where uh, he's, he's asking this question, and you can sense here the anger and, and the, the uh, indignity uh, against what's taking place with this question. Why are they raging, plotting a vain thing, setting themselves in opposition, making plans and gathering together, uh, uh, making secret conclaves, and it says, against the Lord, the, that word Lord, if you see in your scriptures where it's all capitals in the Old Testament, that's the Lord's proper name, Yahweh. Um, and and uh, that's what we see there. It's against the Lord and against his anointed. In my Bible, anointed is capitalized. And that word in the Hebrew is literally Messiah, or Mashiach. Um, and it's where we get our, our term Christ in the New Testament, the Greek version of someone who's anointed. And that's what this is saying is here. This is a messianic psalm. It's the first in the entire book of Psalms that we encounter. And this one specifically, as we read, of course, we see is speaking of the the kingship, the lordship, um, and ultimately the power and strength of the Messiah um, and those who would oppose him being judged. says they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, and this is what their plot is by all the things that they're doing, by the raging, the plotting, the, the setting themselves and the counseling together by all of those things, they are saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. If you notice in verse three, the, the word there in my Bible, again, new King James version here. That word there is capitalized. Um, And if we see the writer of the psalm here is equating the Lord and the anointed as having the same motivation, the the bonds that these in in opposition uh, to them, they're saying that they come from the same thing. It's all the same. And the reason I'm stressing that, of course, is what, what we see here is an equating of the Messiah with God, with Yahweh, with the Lord. It's a claim of the deity of Christ, of the Messiah, in that the bonds and the cords that the Lord, the Father, Yahweh himself has established are the one and the same for the Messiah himself, 
There's no difference of opinion. There's no difference of motivation or authority there. They're fighting against the Lord and His anointed. And they want to break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords. That word break in the Hebrew, it means to draw out, to pluck up, to break, to lift, and to root out. It's to, it's to basically try to remove and break off every and any and every remnant of the bonds of the Lord and His anointed. They want to break them in pieces. And the cords, it's just that. It's cords, it's ropes, it's things that are used to restrain. It's that idea of a prisoner being tied up. Uh, those, it, it, it's that idea of restraint. So what are they saying here? What is happening? Um, they're in effect wanting to free themselves from the authority, from the restraint of God the Father and Jesus, His anointed, the Messiah. They're, they're raging. They're plotting vain things. They're in opposition. And they, they've conspired together to break the bonds in pieces and cast away their cords. So then we have to ask the question, is what, are, what are these bonds? What are these cords? Um, the bonds that we have, that we see, it, again, it speaks of restraint. It's those things that the Lord has says, you shall not do these things. Right? We can think of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not do these things. It's the, the submission and restraint to the Lord and His law. This psalm we see is uh, a, a contrast to what we see in Psalm 1, but it also kind of gives us insight into that first verse there, the counsel of the ungodly, the path of sinners, and the seat of the scornful are those that are want to throw off the restraints of the Lord and His authority, to break His bonds in pieces and cast His cords off from them, to completely toss them away, uh, is what that is speaking of. And, and that's what we see here in uh, the New Testament. We see that partial fulfillment with the first coming of Christ where we see Jesus came as their Messiah. He came and, and fulfilled the prophecies that the Lord had said would need to be fulfilled. He came and fulfilled them to a T, literally, uh, perfectly. But he came in a way that was different from what the, the Jews and the Pharisees were expecting, the religious leaders, the religious rulers they had this system of righteousness that Jesus said was like whitewashed tombs. That was a system of hypocrisy where it was all about the appearance on the outside of righteousness and, and, and religion and obeying the law uh, down to the very letter and all of these things. However, their hearts were unrestrained against the Lord. When Jesus would stand up and would say, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if anyone looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, has committed adultery already. There was the restraint that the Lord Jesus, the Christ was saying as he was on the earth, as he was declaring, there was a, a rebellion against his righteousness and who he was. And there was a, 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 fighting against him and seeking to break the bonds that he uh, had upon them as their Messiah. They were rebelling against his authority. Remember, Jesus came on the, the uh, triumphal entry. He came to them as a king, right? Remember the, the prophecy that we have, I believe, in Zechariah, where he comes, your king comes to you lowly on a donkey. They had the prophecy that Jesus was their king. They had the people there crying out like we sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Fulfilling the other, some of the other messianic psalms that we see um, in the scriptures. And yet, they were not willing to submit to him as their suffering savior, their Messiah, their true king and Messiah. And listen to him uh, for their salvation. And so they fought against him. 
And that's what we see as we look at the people turning against Jesus as he's there before them with Pontius Pilate, um, asking them, will you take Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of the Father, or will you take the murderer, Jesus, Barabbas, the Son of the Father? And they said, crucify him, crucify him. And the Romans and the Jewish leaders who slapped Jesus in the face, who uh, accused him of blasphemy, all of these things, they raged against him. What do we see is we've been looking at John, the Gospel of John, and as we've gone through Matthew and Mark and the other Gospels, what do we see? We see the Pharisees, the religious rulers, the elites, plotting against Jesus. They had plots to kill him. They constantly were seeking to catch him in his words, to trip him up, to have a reason to accuse him of blasphemy and then kill him. And that's ultimately what they lied about as they gathered together and had counsel together. Uh, against Jesus. The other thing to note here is that when there is opposition against Jesus, it's not just against him, it's against the Father. It's against the Lord, against him. And that's what took place there in his first coming. Uh, We don't have time to go there, but in Revelation 17, Revelation 19, and the other prophecies of the end times, we see that there will also be fulfillment of this at the second coming of Christ, as he comes with the battle of Armageddon, when all the nations have gathered together, where they've plotted together, the kings of the earth have joined together under the Antichrist, where the rulers, the princes, those in authority have taken counsel together, To build that city, Babylon, Mystery Babylon, and Babylon the Great, the harlot. To come together in this one united world religion, world government, and they come and they gather together all the armies of the world to fight against the Lord, against Jesus. We'll see fulfillment of that at that point. We'll also see a final fulfillment of this Bible prophecy uh, at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. If you remember the millennial kingdom, Satan is bound in chains for a thousand years. Jesus establishes his rule over the nations like this psalm says. In fulfillment of this psalm and other prophecies that speak of Jesus uh, ultimately being king physically here on earth over all the nations. He rules with a righteous rule for a thousand years. Uh, with Satan not on the earth tempting and influencing people, with the righteous saints who've been transformed and transfigured as we read about in the New Testament where our bodies now are transformed as Christ's body was transformed, where we've put on in the incorruptible and put off the corruptible. And the scriptures talk about us reigning and ruling with him. Well, there will be a perfect government established where the word of Christ is law and and there's perfect judgment as those of us who are ruling with him will have the mind of Christ. We'll we'll know as we're known and we'll, we'll be administering his judgment and his government across his kingdom in the millennial kingdom. At the end of those thousand years in this perfect, close to Eden environment that we read about in the millennial kingdom, At the very end, Satan is set free, deceives the people, and ultimately their heart, even with perfect government, even with Jesus, the perfect king, even with perfect rule and justice established, and an environment that is abundant, no lack of food, uh, no danger from wild animals, all of the things we read about in this perfect world that, that, that takes place. And yet the people still rebel against the Lord and they counsel together and they come to fight against Jesus again. And they're wiped out just like that by the Lord, ultimately. So we see this as a very important psalm because it has all of this fulfillment, all of this to say. But you guys, it's not just prophetic things in the future or things in the past. It's also for today, for what we look at today. It's historical, but it's current as well. Jesus promised that we would have persecution. He says in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus is saying that the things that he would come to experience in the persecution, the opposition against him, as this psalm prophesies, as the disciples saw as Jesus was crucified, and, and they began to experience that persecution against the church is persecution against Christ. It's opposition against the Lord. So we see that the other part of this that is so interesting and, and just jumped out at me as I was studying is, is this was written at, at the very beginning of the Davidic kingdom. This was when Jesus, or when the Lord had uh, anointed David to replace Saul, and, and, and he was uh, being set up as king and, and given the promise that a son would sit on the throne of David forever. And this was being established at, at this very early time in the kind of the golden age of Israel and, and in the rulership of David and all of these things that even at that very beginning time of the nation with a good king, a righteous king established. And yet the prophecy is, is that the world, the nations, the rulers, and we know ultimately the, the ruler of this world, who is Satan, would be con constantly fighting against the Lord and his anointed, against him, and conspiring together. And the people would be hearing and listening and following and being deceived and being led into these things. And ultimately, it's let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords from us. We have the opposition to Christ in the persecution of the church you guys, uh, if you don't already, please uh, subscribe to a newsletter from Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors. Um, Persecution.org is a website you can go to. Um, there's many others out there as well. Um, persecution of the church is increasing more and more across the world. In Sudan, it's horrific the things that are going on. Um, right now uh, in Iran uh, there's a political rebellion against the Shiite Muslim government in Iran but a lot of the opposition is also coming from Christians and this flourishing of the church in Iran and uh, I, I just read today there's over 500 hangings of people in Iran um, and even more of the violence against them and, and woundings and, and other things and other forms of murder and, and, and all of this. There's been a war going on in Burma for over 15, 50 years, a civil war. And that, that civil war, uh, again, is being fought under political grounds, but when you read about, when you hear about what's actually happening, it's churches being bombed. It's Christians being killed because they're taking a stand for freedom and liberty and the things that the scriptures talk about, the dignity of mankind and all of these things. Christians standing upon what God's word has said in for all people. And then you have these governments in opposition. It's masked in, polit masked in politics, but the enemies at work in opposition to the church. We see that in... in quote-unquote, softer forms of persecution around the world as well. We had just recently a man who was standing across the street from a gay pride event here in the States and who was thrown in jail for just speaking Bible verses. Uh, we have uh, persecution of Christian people in the medical profession across the world and in America and in Canada. In Canada, it is required of any licensed doctor to perform abortions. You have to, or you don't have a license. Who is going to oppose abortions? Christians, Catholics, people with any biblical background and biblical worldview because of what the Bible says. It's not persecution because of these ideals or politics. It's 
the world saying, we're going to break the Lord's bonds in pieces. We're going to cast off his cords from us. It's opposition against the Lord and against his anointed. Ultimately, that persecution comes there. We have doctors now being forced to give uh, um, medical assisted suicide in Canada. And it's coming to America. I just heard it's happening in New Jersey illegally, but it's happening in New Jersey as well. And we know, of course, what's taken place in Oregon. Uh, and you have people traveling across the globe to Switzerland and other places for, for uh, medical-assisted suicide. And doctors who uh, were raised up and sworn by the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm are being forced into just the opposite. Now, there's some who have no conscience or no biblical worldview about doing those things, but think of the Christians and, and biblical people. Think of those who stood up in the time of COVID-19 and the lockdowns and all of those other things who stood upon their conscience, their God-given conscience, and had opposition. It was not, again, political. It's masked in this, these things. It's masked in what we see on the outside, but really at the heart of it, it's spiritual opposition against the Lord. It's demonic. It's Satan. And it's, it's the world, the, the spirit of this age, at war with Christ and with the Lord and with believers. And that's the world we live in. But you guys, this is not the end of it, right? Look at verse 4. This is the Lord's answer. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. God laughs. They make plans. They plot. They devise. The Lord laughs. He's not laughing at their demise. He's not laughing at, at the destruction of people who are in opposition to him. He says... The scriptures say the Lord's not willing that any should perish, right? What he's laughing at are their plans, their pride. They're being puffed up. They're, they're even considering that they will be able to accomplish what they're desiring to accomplish. Now, there is temporal effects of the things going on. Again, like I talked about, COVID-19, we had lockdowns against the church Pastors thrown in prison in Canada and other places around the world. Churches slapped with million millions of dollars of fines and fees that they're still battling today in lawsuits. Uh, we had uh, we have global pressures towards the LGBT agendas and all of that going on. Pride Month that we have uh, abortion, like I talked about, euthanasia. We have all of these things. That are, that are pushing, that are forcing, and that they're trying to accomplish. They're trying to bring about world peace where everybody no longer has a sovereign nation, but all together as one. Uh, but they're doing it opposite from what the Lord says, in opposition to Him. Seeking to end climate change and heal the planet and all of these things. Bring about racial equity. They're, they're plotting to control the masses so that they can plot and plan and control everything. Uh, everything is geared towards uniting globally. And ultimately, when you look at all of these things that are happening, all of this stuff going on in the world around us, what are the bonds that are being broken? Marriage, family, the church. God's view of the state and government, children, righteousness, all of the things that the scriptures talk about are being broken in order to plan and to plot and, and to do these things. Ultimately, it's going to come to nothing. This restraint that they're trying to cast off, the Lord at one moment in history is going to allow them to remove that or to have that restraint removed. I believe in the rapture of the church. He who restrains being taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit, and his restraining influence. And at that time, just like in the time of the Tower of Babel, where they said, let's 
build a tower to the heavens. Then the people of the earth at that time, the kings, the rulers, uh, the nations, will say, we can accomplish anything. We don't have anyone restraining us, anyone holding us back any longer. And they'll seek to create their own one world government, their own one world religion, to establish their king that they've chosen to be over them. And the Lord sits and laughs. He'll allow it to go on. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, that seven-year tribulation, where the Lord uses that time to ultimately bring his nation, his people, his chosen people back to him to recognize he is their Messiah. But then he comes in judgment, in fire, like we sing about. I see the king of glory coming on the clouds with fire. That's speaking of the Lord's second coming, when he comes in judgment on the earth. The Lord, he sees, he sits in the heavens, says, shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. There, There is nothing that we, that anyone can devise against the Lord that will last. There are plots and plans. There are physical things that take place. There, there is the suffering of, of believers, the suffering of children. There, there are all of these things that people are plotting and planning against. Ultimately, the Lord sees. Ultimately, it's the, the spiritual part of it that the Lord has in his hands and sees and knows. And, and the, though it seems for a time that there is um, success with the plans, Ultimately, there's judgment coming. And we have to trust and know that the Lord will bring that and that he sees and knows. And he laughs. He holds them in derision. Verse 5, it says, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Speaking to them in his wrath. In fact, it talks about when Jesus comes, what comes out of his mouth, a flaming sword to judge, to rule. And will distress them, meaning to alarm them, to set them at alarm. They're plotting, they're planning, they have their, their, their uh, counsels together in opposition to the Lord. And yet he laughs and then he comes and speaks to them in wrath. And they're distressed and they're alarmed in his deep displeasure. You remember in the book of Revelation what takes place with the people on the earth. They, they cry out to the mountains to fall upon them, for the rocks to crush them, to hide them from the wrath of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. They're alarmed at it. And this is, but this is why the Lord laughs. This is why he, he looks and says, this is nothing. You can't oppose me and my plans. Is verse 6. He says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. All the plans... All the efforts to bring about perfect government, to bring about a perfect society and utopia and to, to make sure that, that uh, the religion is right. You know, I just watched an interview with that Yuval Noah Harari talking about AI. And he was saying, well, uh, maybe one day AI will rewrite the Bible and he can make religion correct. Uh, and, and all of these things. And... and and basically, he, he kept calling uh, religion uh, fantasies of the mind um, over and over again. And there, but, but again, he has this idea, if only, he, he says in the same video, he says, if only people could get away from the fantasies of their minds and realize that people are, are people and we're all united as one in humankind and we can just get together. We can solve all these problems of the world. We can solve the challenge of AI being a threat to humanity, which it's not. Um, uh, just putting that out there. Uh, but to solve uh, the problems of hunger and, and climate change and, and uh, diseases and, and war and all of these things. It's just people have to just understand that we're all humankind and get together. We have to cast off the bonds of the Lord, his cords. And once we do that, then we'll have it right. The Lord says, no, it's not going to happen. I've set my king. I've already established who is ruler of this world. 
I've set him on my holy hill of Zion. The hill of my holiness is the other way you could read that. Um, that word set means he's been installed. Uh, it, it, it's, it's this idea of being cast as molten metal. So the Lord says, this is, this is the plan. It's set in stone. It's not changing. Cast in metal. This is, I've set him. He is my king, and that's not changing. And he's established there where? In Zion, Jerusalem. The seat of his throne. So that's the voice of the Lord there, the Father. Verse 7, we see a shift now to the voice of the Son. It says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten of you, or begotten you. This here is the ultimate claim of the deity of the Messiah here. And in fact, we see this used throughout the New Testament um, to speak of Jesus and his deity. Uh, that phrase, you are my son, uh, it speaks again of this relationship where they're the same kind. Uh, that word begotten, it's not this idea of being created like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, but the, the word there in the Hebrew and also its corresponding word in, in the Greek, it speaks of um, coming out of the same kind. It's this idea that, that uh, they're, they're one and the same, of the same nature. And that's where we get this idea of the the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead, different persons, but same in nature, same in essence. The triune nature of God. And that's this establishment. You are my son. Today I've been begotten you. That name, that beautiful name that the Father calls Jesus, his anointed. Uh, It's interesting as you read in the New Testament, what was the thing that the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders had against Jesus as he would speak? It was, would be when he would call himself the Son. How, besides obviously it's spiritual blindness, but they missed this here with the Messiah himself, the anointed of the Lord, being called by the Father himself to be his son. They had this idea of the Messiah being a king, being a ruler sent by the Lord, all of these things, but they did not believe or understand that it was God himself coming as the Messiah, that Jesus would be God in the flesh, the Messiah would be coming in that way. Uh, But that's what the Lord says, I will declare the decree. Jesus stands up and says, this is what the Father has said to me. He said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Remember when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what took place? This is my son, listen to him, is the voice that came from the Father. Uh, And this is what Jesus declares and stands upon, and what we see is his deity. Verse 8, it says, ask of me, This is the Father speaking to the Son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Has this been fulfilled? No. Not yet. Yes and no. Because Jesus, or the Lord here, the Father telling Jesus, telling uh, the writer of the psalm here, he says, I have set, verse 6, past tense we see this this viewpoint, this perspective that the Lord has where he's outside of time. Something for us to understand or try to understand or at least acknowledge, I should say. We can't really understand being outside of time. But this idea of that the Lord, he's outside of time. So all the things that he's prophesied, all the things that for us we look in the future and say haven't happened yet, the Lord sees them as having already happened, as having been accomplished. That's why the book of Revelation says that uh, Jesus is a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, where the Lord can say, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Where uh, the Lord says, "I, I declare the end from the beginning, 
all of these things is because the Lord created time, therefore he exists outside of time. He created everything. And therefore, he says, I've set my king, past tense, on my holy hill of Zion. But for us, inside time, we see Jesus, he came suffering as the suffering savior. Did not come, remember what he said, if my kingdom was of this world, my disciples would rise up and take possession, right? I'm paraphrasing. But he says it's not of this world. At that time when he came, he didn't come to establish this kingdom. He came in grace and long-suffering to die on the cross for our sins, to provide a way for the people to come out of a world system in opposition to the Lord, to come out from under his wrath, to be saved from the judgment that is coming, to have, as we'll see in a little bit, the opportunity to kiss the son, lest he be angry. That's why Jesus came suffering the first time, was to provide the way for us in that. But those who resist and ultimately live on and die or continue and persevere in their resistance, there's going to be judgment coming. But ultimately we see that the second coming of the Lord, what does he come for? He comes for to fulfill this, establish his kingdom on the earth, to take possession of the nations, to have them as his inheritance to the ends of the earth for his possession. What's interesting about this verse, verse 8, is that this is the very thing, one of the very things Satan tempted Jesus with as he went out into the wilderness. Remember, Satan says, you see all these kingdoms? I'll give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. For Jesus, he knew he already had those. That was already his. Though for now, for the time being, uh, Satan has been given authority and rulership over this world but ultimately the nations and the ends of the earth as his inheritance were already given to him by his father and the way for him to take possession of that was to go through the suffering of the cross to resist the temptation of satan to not bow down and worship him but to go through his life on the earth to go through the suffering of the cross to be resurrected and ultimately to come back and judge and then to take possession and that was the father's plan And that is what we have to look forward to is that where, again, Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth. We see verse 9, ultimately, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. It's funny, in the church, I just saw another video. I, I I don't remember. It's probably a good thing who said it, but someone who's a pretty popular Bible teacher criticizing and railing on this idea of Jesus in his second coming. And that people who believe in that and those pastors who teach that, they just love violence and want to see this bloody God come down and take vengeance on the earth. It's in the scriptures. They're railing against what the Lord has said himself. It's not that we love violence and we want to see these things, but God is a God of justice. And if we have the heart of Christ in us, we should love justice We should want to see wickedness punished, justice taking place, judgment. And we see ultimately a golden scepter come for. He comes with a rod of iron. It's not a a golden scepter. It's a rod of iron. It's a rule that can't be broken. Remember we looked at in Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah who was told to make that yoke of wood. And he wore it around. And then the false prophet came to him and said, I'm going to break the bond on Israel's neck in pieces, and he took the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and shattered it. What happened? Jeremiah went. The Lord told him, hey, make a yoke of iron. Put it around your neck because they're not going to break it. And he went and said, because you broke, you said this bond is going to be broken, I'm now putting a yoke of iron on the nation of Israel and around your neck. And it's the same thing we see here. Resistance against the Lord and his authority now when it's the authority of the cross, a wooden authority, if you would permit me to use that metaphor, but this authority of of grace and compassion and long-suffering where he says, obey me, listen to me, but we're not forced at this time. If there's an ultimate resistance in saying, let's break that 
in pieces and cast it away from us, then the authority that will come is an authority of iron that can't be broken, can't be resisted. It says, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, shattered. The plans, all of the things that have come uh, up against the Lord, they're just going to be shattered. And that's what the Lord Jesus will do. Verse 10, here's the response, the admonition. It says, now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So we see this call for wisdom. You guys know the verse. What does it say in Proverbs about wisdom, the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Uh, Reverence, respect, but actual fear, trembling. What's the fear for? It's the fear for this judgment, for his wrath, his deep displeasure, for the rod of iron that can dash us to pieces. All of those things are in the character and nature of God and in the character and nature of Christ as well. All of those things. Wisdom begins with a healthy fear of those things. It's an understanding that God has said this is how we should live. God has said this is what is right. God has said this is the way we come to salvation. Any resistance, any deviation from that ultimately will result in judgment. Wisdom says we submit. There's the wisdom. It says, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. What do the scriptures say? Again, in Proverbs, fools despise correction, right? Despise correction. Be instructed. There here is that little, little hint of grace with the Lord is that he says they're doing these things, raging, plotting a vain thing, setting themselves, taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the Lord says, be wise, have some fear. Be instructed. You have these plots, they're vain things. Ultimately, judgment's coming. Here's your chance. Be instructed. Don't resist correction. You judges of the earth. And it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Again, that idea, serve, is to submit to the Lord, to bow before him. Serve the Lord with fear. That should be our attitude in our heart. We have in the scriptures, of course, those things that say we cry out to the Lord as Abba, and that, that dear, uh, you know, uh, cry of a child to daddy is what that we could say that means. Uh, but at the same time, we serve him because he's a righteous God, a God of justice, a God of holiness, dwells in unapproachable light, uh, a God who does not change, that we should serve him and submit to him with fear. The church Christianity is being influenced by all these things that we read about in the first two verses, first three verses of this psalm. The church, in, in effect, has uh, done the opposite of what Psalm 1 says, where it's walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the path of sinners and sitting in the seat of the scornful. The Lord has his remnant, I believe that that there are many in our fellowship who resist. I don't know the heart of every everyone, but that is the spirit of the age we live in: deception, deceit, uh, this uh, spirit that is seeking to take the church and to make it lukewarm, to influence it down to be no different than the world around it. <coughs> And yet the church needs to look at what we're doing and say, are we submitted to the Lord in what his word says, what he says is right and wrong? And are we submitted to him with fear? Being afraid of the judgment comes. Remember what the Lord says, judgment begins with the house of God. That we will stand before him and give an account for what we do in this life. Give an account for the words that we say. 
we have to look at ourselves. The Lord gives us his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit convicts us of things in our heart. Not just sin, but convicts us of what is the right way for us to go. Things that we should perhaps not be doing. Maybe they're not sin, but things that, that are not what the Lord's plan is for our lives. Are we resisting? Are we saying, I'm, I don't want to do that. I'm going to break that bond. If we have that heart, we have this warning. We're not resisting just against these restraints that the Lord has put on our life, the conviction and all of those things. Ultimately, we're fighting against Him and against Jesus, the very Savior who died on the cross for us to set us free. And the things that He said as, this is how we live. We're to submit to Him with fear and rejoice with trembling. We rejoice because we see, again, He's a God of justice. He's a God of grace. He's a God who stands up and opposes those who are coming against his people. He will ultimately judge those who persecute his church, who come against the Jews as his chosen people. There's rejoicing, but again, it's with trembling. It's that idea of humility before the Lord, but for the grace of God, I would be the same way. And that's the attitude and heart we're to have in our lives, is to have that, submitted to him with fear, seeing like the disciples said, Lord, where else would we go? We should have that heart. Lord, where else would we go? If we go anywhere else, we're outside of God's will. We submit to him with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then verse 12, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry. For some reason, there's this big debate about what this means and why this is here. It's really pretty simple. Kiss the sun. There's a couple ways you can see it. Uh, if you've watched any, any sort of movie or read any story about medieval kings and all of these things, what is a common thing that, that a servant or someone who's subject to that king comes and does? The king puts out the hand and they kiss the ring, right? Uh, in the Middle East, uh, there is the custom when a guest enters your home, uh, there's this, this inclining of the head forward, raising your hand to your heart, mouth, and forehead, uh, which is a symbolic meaning uh, or symbolic action, meaning my heart, my voice, my brain are all at your service. But there's a more extreme form of that when there's a more complete bow. Uh, and this, it, the custom is not only for royalty, although it's especially for royalty, but not only. But they want to express thanks for a favor, supplicate for a favor, or uh, any other times of meeting with someone uh, who they're indebted to or have gratitude towards or are seeking something from. Uh, says they often fall on their knees incline the body, touching the ground with their head, and kissing the lower part of the person's clothing or his feet or even the dust at his feet. In fact, the word for worship, proskuneo, means to bow down, to kiss. Uh, this other um, custom in the, among the Arabs in the Middle East uh, it says it's very seldom that a son is heard of as being undutiful, not being obedient to his father. It says it's quite customary for the child to greet the father in the morning by kissing his hand. And after this, standing before him in an attitude of humility, ready to receive any order, waiting for permission to depart. Following this, usually the child is put on the father's lap in a sign of affection. That's the picture we have. Kiss the son. It's a sign of homage, submission. It's all the things that he talks about. Serving the Lord with fear, submitting to him. Kiss the son. If you notice, that is the way to be spared from the wrath of God. Is through the son. 
in the scriptures, David prophetically as he's writing and the Holy Spirit is putting this song upon his heart and his lips. He's writing down about salvation and salvation being only through the Son, through Jesus, through the Messiah, submitting to him, paying homage, kissing him. And in kissing the Son, says that you escape from these things, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled, but a little. It's just a little bit of wrath. It's interesting, all the nations of the world we see in the book of Revelation gathering together all of the resources of the world, all the military, all the armies, all the people gathering together to come to fight against Christ. And it's just a word from his mouth and they're struck down. His wrath kindled just a little. And there's the destruction. But we, as believers, we should have this understanding. Christ is loving. He's gracious, kind, compassionate. He's the suffering Messiah. He's the good shepherd. Shepherds his sheep. Goes out to find the one that's lost. Leaves the 99 to find them. Find that one lost sheep. Carries him home. He's uh, our protector. He's our great physician. He intercedes for us on our behalf. He stands in our place before the Father. But at the same time, he's going to stand in judgment. And we as believers, we should not forget those things. We need to look at our hearts and our lives. Am I resisting the Lord? Am I resisting the things he has for me? Am I looking at the scriptures and reading them and being convicted in my heart, but then going away and not obeying? We're not just resisting the scriptures. You're resisting the Lord when we do that. Remember, we spent all that time in Jeremiah and Lamentations as a picture, this horrific picture of resisting the Lord's word over and over and over again. And it wasn't them just resisting his word. It was ultimately them resisting him. What took place for his people is judgment came. They had consequences for their sin. All of the horrific things that took place didn't have to be that bad. There was judgment and consequences, but they got worse and worse as they continued to resist. And that's the clear warning for us as we resist the Lord. If we continue to resist, things can get worse and worse and worse. But we, while we still breathe at this time, have the chance to turn around, to be wise, to be instructed, to receive the correction, to submit to the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, to kiss the Son, in homage to him, to submit to him, to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done to Christ. And then we have this beautiful promise at the end. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. We can trust him. We can trust him. We can take him at his word. We can look at the world around us and be disillusioned. Rightly so, we can be grieved in our hearts because of the things taking place. We can be uh, scared and, and have anxiety and we can have all those things. But if we're looking at Christ, if we're serving Him, if we're following Him, we can have that happiness, that joy, that peace, that understanding that we can trust the Lord and we can follow him and we, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry about the judgment that's coming upon the nations. We can trust him. If we placed our faith in him, we can trust him that our salvation is set. We can have assurance of our salvation if we're following him, if we've placed our faith in him. Um, but we have that call and that requirement for us to walk in holiness and, and to look at him. It's a beautiful psalm, this messianic psalm. Um, and it's so important because it establishes the deity of Christ. It establishes his authority. It establishes him as being the king in Jerusalem. And it, and it establishes ultimately God's judgment upon sinners and those who would rail against him. And for us as believers, we can trust him that these are going to take place.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would consider our own hearts and lives, Lord. Uh, the application being, Lord, twofold, that we can trust you. We should trust you. We can have those blessings of uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, Lord, as we trust you and walk with you. But at the same time, we can understand and know that you will judge sin. You will judge those who oppose you. Uh, that you see you're not a weak God who just sits by and lets bad things happen. But you watch, you see, you know, you take account, Lord. And ultimately, there will be judgment, Lord. And we can trust you for that as well. And then for us, Lord, that we would have that understanding of needing the fear and the reverence before you, Lord. That we would submit to you when we're convicted by your spirit, Lord. That we wouldn't walk away in resistance. We wouldn't say, that's not for me, Lord. But that we would consider our lives, all the things we do, the decisions we make, what we spend our time on, Lord. That we would consider what you would have us do and we would submit to you in those things rather than resist, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.